I invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16. This is a section within Matthew that has a theme that I want to kind of focus us in on. It's an opportunity to think about a strong statement of Christ, several strong statements, but ones that I think we need to contend with as the Lord has brought them to our attention in the flow of exposition. Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28, I'm going to make a unit section. This is to finish off chapter 16, but it, it highlights the concept of discipleship at the cost of taking up your cross. And in the times that Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, that was where by Roman execution, people would be pinned up to a cross, hung to a cross, tied to a cross, aligned down a road with people being executed in the name of Rome and Roman rule and the Roman empire to say, Don't mess with Rome because if you do, you would end up dying on a cross. So for Jesus in this section to say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, is to say, be willing to die for me. It's a strong statement taken seriously and taken literally. It's kind of a striking statement to think about. Pick up at verse 24. It's right in the middle of this section. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What does that mean? What does it mean? To actually deny yourself, to actually be willing to die for Christ. Jesus is clearly creating a fork in the road. He's been with his disciples for two and a half years. He's on his final lap of his walking tour with them where he's entrusting himself and sort of commissioning orders to his disciples. He knows he's going to take up his literal cross and die in Jerusalem. That's the leading context for what he says here. And now he's giving this challenge to them, a challenge that they need to take very seriously A lot of people will soft shell this command for them and for us today by saying, oh, I have my cross I have to bear. Oh, my spouse is so hard to deal with. Oh, my job is so difficult for me to bear. My health is bad. My mother-in-law is coming to town. That is my cross I have to bear, et cetera, et cetera can sound silly, and to frame Jesus' statement in that way would be silly, but what if Jesus means what he actually is saying, that we're supposed to consider death as discipleship, consider the cost of following him even if it means death? Is Jesus talking in a literal sense? Well, in every case, Roman execution by cross automatically meant death, And Jesus is saying, take up your cross. I'm going to do it, calling you to do it. That's what this section is all about. Can it mean literal death? 
to be a disciple of Christ? Well, we need to understand this command and this standard that Jesus is setting. To die is to be a witness in this context, to be a martyr like Stephen, like so many others that died. Paul, who died with his head cut off. History says Peter was crucified upside down. People died for the faith. We know that Hebrews 11 talks about men of whom the world is not worthy and men who died, prophets who died, Isaiah who potentially was sawn in half for the faith. Many have died, Old Testament, New Testament, for the name of Christ and the Old Testament looking to Christ in the New Testament because of Christ. In 1559, John Calvin, he was standing for truth, standing in Geneva outside of France proper and was um, discipling people and he was countering the uh, religion of the king of France. And this quote says, he began a seminary in Geneva to train young pastors, young pastors and church planners. We know that Calvin sent at least 88 church planners to his native country of France, possibly many more. It was dangerous to plant churches in France because of the anti-Protestant sentiment. That's anti-Christian church sentiment. In fact, it was so dangerous that the Academy of Geneva became known as Calvin's School of Death because many graduates went out to martyrdom. Any seminary was named the school of death. I, this quote says uh, they'd be empty. I think with our culture today, it might be somewhat of a challenge and dignifying what's going on. It could actually be a draw. To be an apostle didn't automatically mean you died, though. I know you're thinking that. I mean, there are many people who died of just death and, and just the end of their life. Uh, Even in Hebrews 11, the heroes of faith, men and women, some just died. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. He was persecuted, but he died. We consider him dying of old age there. So it doesn't mean automatic death. Most will not die for the faith physically. Most will not. We know that. Some will. Some do. So how do we understand this teaching and how does it apply? If it's this serious And it doesn't automatically mean physical death, but could mean physical death. Practically did mean physical death, at least for Christ and for some. How do we apply it? We apply it in terms of the mindset of what Jesus taught. Jesus makes it a non-negotiable for a Christian disciple. To be a Christian disciple, you have to adopt this mindset. This is the command standard of Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross with a willingness to die. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's a mindset for the mission. It's what he's laying out. If you'll know the story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, many do. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. He was a Lutheran pastor and theologian around the early 1900s, 1937. He wrote the book Cost of Discipleship. That's where it was... um, published. That's when it was published. And the theme of that book is him combating what was called cheap grace, cheap grace. This is what the church in America has lived on and really falsely understood in terms of grace. And Bonhoeffer was chasing this down and calling it out 
during World War II times. And he defined cheap grace as this in his book. He said, it's preaching forgiveness without repentance. It's being baptized into the church without church discipline, no accountability. It's communion without confessing sins. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Bonhoeffer was clear that though grace is a free gift, and it is, following Christ always comes with a cost. It's the cost of discipleship. You know the story of Bonhoeffer. He was part of a conspiracy in World War II times to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And nearing the end of World War II, he was caught. In doing so, he was imprisoned in a war camp. There he experienced great fellowship and wrote about it in another book that he published called Life Together. It's a great book. Hitler was strangling the true church within Germany. He was threatening the whole world, and Bonhoeffer went for it with a mindset that he considered the cost and was willing to give his life as a sacrifice for a cause greater than himself. You may or may not agree with his mindset. I mean, we can't recapture what it would have been like then and to do what he did, but That's debatable, but don't miss his noble mindset. And he records this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Listen to this. A decision must be made at some point. And it's no good waiting indefinitely for a sign from heaven that will solve the difficulty without further trouble. To procrastinate or prevaricate, which is to stall or quibble, simply because you're afraid of erring seems to me almost to run counter to love. To delay or fail to make decisions may be more sinful than to make wrong decisions out of faith and love. He's saying, go for it. Jesus says, come, follow, commit, lay down your life. Give me your total self, all of you. It's a commitment to a mindset before the persecution comes. I mean, our country is probably driving us to make this kind of commitment. Our country is driving us to a fork in the road decision. Are you really in for Christ or was it just part of being part of a church? Is it Christ is all in all or not? Commit before it gets hard. We're going to have to contend with this statement, not just because the statement is here, but because the The heat is turning up. So here's the principle of our two-paragraph section. It's a mindset that Jesus models. That's verses 21 to 23. It's the mindset that Jesus models. And then verses 24 to 28 is the mindset that Jesus requires. The mindset that Jesus models is the same mindset that Jesus requires. So we've got to get our heads around what Jesus is saying, and we have to apply it to our lives. But Jesus first. Good verse. Let me read it all as a section together. Verses 21 to 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, our first point for our first section is as follows. Jesus' mindset as our model. Jesus is the model. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He's showing them something. It's a decided shift in focus. And again, this is a a party of intimacy where he's with them. He's been around the Sea of Galilee. It's 70 miles due north of Jerusalem where the Pharisees have been coming up and trying to, trying to entangle him. Their Pharisees and Sadducees have been in collusion together, trying to get Jesus to trip up in what he's saying, trying to indict him as being counter to Rome, counter to the temple and get him in trouble, get him out of there. They want to cancel Christ. These two religious parties that couldn't agree with each other, couldn't be in more disagreement with each other if we tried, and they're coming together, and they're conspiring to get Jesus. And so Jesus knows the heat is coming on, and he also knows that he's going to die and leave, and so he is committed to tell his disciples exactly what's going on and why. He's opening up a very emotional conversation, talking about the task of suffering that he is going to undertake. It says he's showing his disciples. He's giving them the movie of what's going to happen before it does. He opens the screen of their minds to say, I'm going down there. And look at the language here. I must go. It's a fait accompli. I am going there. It's unavoidable. I'm going to soon play this out. And so I'm telling you this story so you won't be caught unawares or caught up short as to what's happening. It's a dramatic picture. It's an emotional moment. It's something the disciples did not want to hear and certainly did not want to believe. The idea of he must go must have been troubling for the disciples. Why must Jesus go? He's the Messiah. He's here to rule. Peter has said as much in Matthew 16. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. I know you are the Messiah, which for us, we associate Messiah with cross. We associate Messiah with lamb. Associate Messiah as anointed king. That's what's in the Jewish mind when they say you're the Christ, you're the anointed, you're the Messiah, you're the king who's come in the clouds to stamp and tamp down Rome, which is not a uh, unrealistic request because all the Old Testament prophecies are talking in terms of lion and lamb. And a lot of the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah is more he's coming as the lion, he's coming as the ruler. You have Isaiah 53, you have Psalm 2, Psalm 22. You have Zechariah talking about the one who is pierced. You have suffering servant language, but a lot is swelled over with king language. 
He's going to lay down some fire. And uh, he, he says as much in um, verse 27 of this section. I mean, it's always dovetailed that way. So for their expectation to be um, kind of dashed where, oh, you're going, you're, you're going on a mission to die, that's counterintuitive to what we were thinking. It's troubling. Are you saying you have to go? We've been devoted for three years and you're saying you have to go? Is God the Father telling you to go? This is disconcerting for them. Who's driving this mission? Where you're going into hostile territory, where you're going to suffer. Uh, The ones who've come to you are now the ones that you are going to. They're dangerous. And it means you're going to be killed. Not just incarcerated, but killed. We're canceling the mission. That's what's going on, Jesus. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said about the irony of this. He said, the prediction of Jesus' passion, meaning going to the cross, conceals a great irony. For the suffering and death of the Son of Man will not come, as we would expect, at the hands of godless, wicked people. He's being ironic here. It's at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. All of the pastors are going to pig pile on Jesus and kill him. Jesus will not be lynched by the enraged mob or beaten to death as a criminal act, but he'll be arrested with official warrants and tried and executed by the world's envy of jurisprudence. It's in the name of justice that Jesus is going to go down. That's what Jesus is describing here to the shock and appall of his followers. You're going into these corrupt religious leaders and you're going to play right into their hands. What stands out most to me is the fact that what he said about him going to suffer and being killed almost erases the final phrase that he makes in verse 21, that on the third day he'll be raised. If they really believed that, it almost would, it wouldn't erase the suffering and killing unjustly, but it might comfort the disciples to know that in three days he's going to rise again. The third day explicitly is mentioned here, that he's going to be raised. But it's the logic of him going And the pragmatics of him going into the hands of his enemies, it just, it sort of causes them not to hear the end of the statement. They don't hear the whole thing. They can't have one without the other. It's too scary to lose Jesus. And so they're hopeless instead of hopeful in the looming shadow of the cross. If they believed in the resurrection and the resurrection of Christ, it would not say that death wasn't horrible, but this scene would be more survivable. This is how we need to think as well about our own lives, knowing that death is not the end, that heaven awaits and that we're growing in grace and that the trials, the hardships, the persecutions, the insults, insults, the injuries of life are all to conform us into Christ's image and to make us more like him. And we grow in grace through that. And God's perfecting us in that. And he's promised us heaven. That's why we keep going. We can't just focus on the negative without seeing the positive. And that's what these disciples were doing. And we know that because where Jesus is modeling what it looks like to take up the cross in terms of accepting the Father's will. He's accepting God's will saying this is what must happen. Peter is going to, by contrast, reject God's will. He's going to reject it. 
He's going to reject this model. Look at verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This is the slide of of digression that happens in the heart when you reject God's will. You see God's will. You might see it in Scripture. You see what you need to do, and you're just flying in the face of it. You don't want to embrace the mission that's in front of you. It's easy to become self-righteous and look down on Peter, isn't it? How could he do this? Jesus has been talking about going to the cross. He's been talking about laying down his life. He's been talking about having to be raised up to draw men to himself. He's been talking about suffering. He's been talking about what they do to the master, going to do the servants. I mean, this is not new language. So how can Peter be so off in this moment? We all slide into the same digressive patterns that Peter did, though. We're no better than Peter. Peter is modeling for us what it looks like to reject God's will for our lives. What is it in our life that we're not doing that God wants us to do? What is it that we are still in a state of unwillingness to do what he wants us to do? We're not there yet in our mindset, and Peter wasn't either. He was, first and foremost, insubordinate. He was insubordinate to what Jesus had just laid out that he's going to do. Peter is... It's easy for us to dog him out because Jesus is so striking in his rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Stand down, soldier. You're in my way. Get over here. I've got this mission. We go, how could Peter do that? He's the spokesman for the apostles. He's this leader of leaders. He's just been affirmed by Christ where Christ said, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but the spirit of God, the father is through the Holy Spirit has revealed this to you. So how could he do this? He's, he's on the top of the mountain and then he's down in the depths of the valley with what he's just done. Get behind me, Satan. Well, guess what? Peter said what he said believing that he was working and operating within God's will. He thought he was doing the right thing. He was taking Jesus aside. Jesus, you're awesome. You're the Messiah. You're fully God, fully man. I get it. Um, But you just said something, and I want to just take you aside. Let me just give you some life coaching off to the side here. The disciples will be over there, and I just want to talk to you privately and and just remind you who you are. Because you just had a lapse just for a moment. It's all good. But I want to just tell you that this is never going to happen. You're not going down there. Your mission is up here. It's super effective. And we're going to take over Rome together. Remember that? That's what Peter is doing. He's trying to be a supportive um, and a true subordinate, not an insubordinate person. He doesn't want to allow Jesus to be executed on false charges. That's unrighteous. That's sin to be done to Christ. Peter is trying to protect Jesus. Now, we do the same thing. We have the same rationalizing capacities where we use the word of God and leverage it in a way to try to excuse ourselves for what is not godly at all. And we don't even know that. Peter's willing to stick his neck out for Christ. I'm willing to, to go there for Jesus. I'm willing to rebuke Jesus and give him some correction. Imagine that, the nobility of that. But what he uses here is straight up flattery. Look at verse 22, far be it from you, Lord, this should never happen to you. This shall never take place. 
Again, Matthew 16, he just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus had said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. The father did. I mean, Peter's going, I am working from that platform to help you, Lord. Jesus is worthy of worship, not prosecution. Worthy of glory, not shame. Worthy of life, not death. All are true. But applied in this context, Peter is Satan. (laughs) Think about that. Jesus can't die because he's here to rule and reign. This is what the prophecies all promised. This is all supposed to take place. He's divine. But Peter missed the memo and the fact that Jesus came to be the lamb before the lion. He had to deal with sin before he could be exalted as the enthroned king of kings. At that point, he's insubordinate. Secondly, he's an impediment. He's an impediment. Where am I building that from? Well, it's where the body language says as much. And this is where Jesus turned and said to Peter, verse 23, he turned and said to Peter, imagine that. This is the one thing you never once said to you, where Jesus turns around, looks you in the eye and says, get behind me, Satan. I'm going to use the title for my greatest adversary and name you that title. You are Satan right now. Get behind me. You're in my way. You thought you were in the lead with what you're saying, but I am in the lead and you need to be the follower. When you reject God's will, you become an impediment to God's plan. And I build this with the phrase after he says, get behind me. Just skip that for a second. We'll come back to it. It says, you are a hindrance to me. The word hindrance is stumbling block, scandal on. You're somebody that's standing in my way. I need to do this. I need to follow the Father's plan and will. I need to fulfill this prophecy to secure the salvation of all who would believe. And you're throwing yourself in front of me with flattery? You're acting like Satan himself. You're trying to flatter me out of my mission. You're trying to pump up my ego and tempt me in ways that would stop or disqualify the mission. You're a stumbling block. You are a scandalon to me. Jesus is saying, stand down like a police officer saying, there is nothing to see here. Get out of my way. This is also, by the way, a veiled admission to how intense this temptation really was for Christ. Now, Christ could not sin, did not sin, never had a heart to sin, but temptation still came from the outside, even if they were never coming from the inside. Hebrews says as much where it says that Jesus was tempted or tested in all ways as we are yet without sin. That's what makes him the perfect high priest, the sympathetic high priest, the intercessor between God and man in real sympathy. He knows what it means to go through intense, intense, intense temptation. And Peter in this moment, which I believe this is the most severe rebuke ever delivered to a believer. Peter in this moment is getting that rebuke because of the intensity of the temptation that's being delivered through him to Christ. How do you deal with satanic temptation? You turn, you look in the eye and you say, no. Get behind me. Get out of the way. James 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. No, sir. No, sir. Not going there. 
That's how you deal with temptation. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus will deal with this temptation later on a more extraordinary level at the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about that. External temptation, not internal, but real and authentic, where Luke's gospel says in Luke 22 that he is sweating great drops of blood. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What is he praying? Well, Matthew 26, 39, he went a little farther. He fell on his face. He is stumbling physically on his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He's wrestling and grappling with submitting to the will of his father. Not sinfully so, but he is externally tempted in this moment. Again, verse 42 of Matthew 26, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. That's the temptation and wrestling that Jesus models for us to get it right. To be humbled under the will of God takes that kind of work and that kind of commitment. This is the mindset of taking up your cross. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to yield and take up the cross, the physical, literal cross. This is a ferocity, a ferocious temptation that came through Peter. It's amazing how people who can be our closest friends can send us in the wrong direction with the most noble of purposes, using the Bible to do it. You have to discern. You have to be careful. And you have to see if Satan is involved sometimes with people that are real close to us, not to be harmful to your friends, but just to say, man, that actually is errant. That's not true. That's going to send me down a wrong path and take my eye off the ball in terms of doing God's will. God's will. Well, here's the third level. First, Peter becomes this um, insubordinate. Then he's an impediment. Then he's satanic. Satanic. We're kind of skipping back to what he called him. He said, verse 23, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. Satan meaning adversary. It's the devil, the dragon of Revelation 12. What does he mean by that? Peter is a believer. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. First John 4, 4. We know that. So nothing can let separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Not height, depth, depth, angels, or principalities. So, so demons can't separate you. They can't unadopt you. They can't snatch you from the Father's hand. You know, nothing can separate us. Christ is in us, the hope of glory. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, what fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship has Christ with Belial? In other words, no fellowship. That's a complete contradiction. If you are a child of the light, you're not a child of the darkness. If the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has given you sight to see Christ, then you're no longer blinded as an unbeliever. So what is Jesus calling Peter Satan for? And what is Peter doing in the name of Satan at this point if Satan can't possess him? What are we talking about? He's not Judas Iscariot. Judas was a fake believer. He wasn't the real thing. He looked like it, but he wasn't a real believer. And Satan entered into his heart. That's different than what's happening with Peter. The Bible's clear that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Demons possess unbelievers. Um, Satan inspires and rules through all false religion. He calls false teachers to interrupt and destroy the church and, and pull people 
who are potential believers to pull them and lead them astray. Satan is the God of this world. He's ruling over all the false ideologies. He's ruling over the people who are trying to quiet the gospel, who are trying to snuff out the church, who are trying to make a cancel culture for the church. He's, he's involved in those details, making the Christian gospel into hate speech, which it's not. It's the ultimate love speech, saving speech. And Satan's involved in all of that, but he can't, do that by possessing or channeling himself through Peter. So why is Jesus calling him Satan? Well, what is important to understand is that Satan can do one thing to a believer, and that is tempt his mind or her mind to be led astray. He can't take you out of the kingdom. He can't unchristian you. Um, Think of it in terms of two fields. He's standing at the fence as the neighbor. He's in his field, which is the field of the unredeemed, the field under the headship of Adam. And then you have this field that's under the headship of Christ. And he can't pull you over the fence, but he can call you up to the fence and say, hey, let's, let's start thinking like this and acting this way and live this way. That's what you used to do. That's Satan's role. It's why we resist him. He flees from us. That's why it is a wrestling match. As believers, we, we are unchained from the dominion of this world, from the dominion of our sin and from the dominion of Satan. But at the same time, there's a wrestling match that goes on still till we get to glory. Ephesians 6, 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in the unseen realm. How do we contend with that? We put on the helmet of salvation. We protect our brain, our mind, our thinking from the machinations, from the subtle and satanic sophisticated strategies to pull us off the mission. We have the breastplate of righteousness. We live a Christian life. We repent of sin. We gird our loins with truth. We live in a Bible-soaked thinking and mindset. We shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel. We are firmly rooted in the gospel truth. We know why we are saved. All this armor protects our vital organs. It's gospel armor. We have the sword of the spirit. We use the word of God. We think with truth and we fight off the devil with truth. Nevertheless, We can still be tempted into misguidance by Satan's strategies. Think about how sophisticated he is with Peter. And this is really important to see. Um, He's saying to Peter something like this. Peter, you need to protect Jesus from himself right now. You need to step in. He's going to go. And Peter could have been thinking that was the Holy Spirit. He's being... So noble. Jesus is being so noble. He's being too noble. He's missing the fact that he's going to sacrifice himself and contradict the purpose of his coming. Go and serve Jesus. Serve the master by reminding him how worthy he truly is. These are the same plays Jesus, or Satan made against Jesus when he went in the wilderness before he's launching into his mission. Hey, here's bread. You've, you've been starving yourself for God for 40 days. So now exercise your power because God has made a provision for you through the power. Turn the stones to bread. Just do it for God's glory. Make it happen. Second, uh, hey, Jesus, okay, you're at the top of the temple. This is a test, but it's a way to vindicate the truthfulness of God's word and the promises of God. God's word says angels will not let you to dash 
your heel against a stone. Throw yourself off the temple. Let's, let's glory in God's word right now. Go for it. Wait, wait, wait. All those prophecies, those messianic prophecies where all the kingdoms of the world are promised to you, God has given me authority over that, but I'm gonna give it to you. Just bow down and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and we'll fulfill this prophecy right now. Trust, my, trust God's provision. Trust God's word. Trust God's will. That's what Satan tempted Jesus with. And Jesus at every turn said, it is written, it is written, it is written. From Deuteronomy, quoting the Old Testament to keep his Messiahship status, to keep the mission going. At any one turn, had he sinned, it all would have been over. It's amazing. The truth prevailed Jesus wasn't disqualified. The mission was not canceled. He models for us the pure and simple devotion to Christ. Keep it simple. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord to the test. You should worship God and him alone. I mean, he was able to diagnose and discern the error that was ensconced in truth. That's what Satan will do. He'll give you half truths, but it's a whole lie. It's a damnable lie to lead you astray. Remember Eve, Adam and Eve, they took the bait where Satan slithered into the garden and basically convinced Eve that God was withholding his best from them. You can be like God. You can know the difference between good and evil, which they were half-truths. Their eyes were opened to sin and they became sinful and sinners and depraved and it plunged humanity into a lost state. I have to meet Satan's trick in the way Jesus did. Just call it out for what it is. And he uses Satan as a synonym for what Peter is doing. Get behind me, Satan. It's what you're doing. You have a satanic, watch this, mindset. What does a satanic mindset look like for Peter? Does it look like witchcraft or the occult? No, he's just worshiping him. Self-worship is Satanism. That's what it means to be satanic, to be all about you. You say, but I do that all the time. Yeah, I know. Peter did it. You can repent your way out of it. The clarity of what Jesus says next with his diagnostic is not disheartening, it's heartening. It's not hopelessness, it's hopeful. Call it out for what it is so you can repent of it and get on. So again, digression, And rejecting God's will meant Peter was insubordinate. He was an impediment. He was satanic. And lastly, he's an idolater. It's all about him. He's worshiping himself. That's what Jesus says. You're a hindrance to me. And then for you are not setting your mind. Here's mindset. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. By the way, who's Jesus confronting here? Is he going after Satan? He called Peter Satan. Is he blaming Satan saying, Peter, you're a victim of Satan? Well, Peter was conscripted by Satan. He fell to the temptation of the tempter, but Peter was completely morally responsible for what he did. He's blaming Peter. You, Peter, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You feed on the things of man. You feed on yourself. You poor little me enough, and you're being conscripted by Satan. The diagnostic is to rip off the Band-Aid and show what Satan has accomplished so far in Peter's head. You're not setting your mind on the right things. 
Setting your mind, it's used over and over again by Paul, by the way, Colossians 3.1, set your mind on things above, not on this earth, but look up. Paul's language is the same in Philippians 2, chapter 2 and 3, be of the same mind, have this attitude, it's all the same Greek language, it's a battle for your mind. Paul is always pointing to the battleground of the mind, and setting your mind is a moral choice, it's what you can do or what you're refusing to do. And actions always follow thinking. It's on the things of God. If you set your mind on the things of God, that leads to life. If you set your mind on yourself, you'll self-eliminate. And think of the false teacher in Philippians. I think it's chapter 3 where Paul indicts the false teacher as the God who is the God of his own appetite. His God is his belly. It literally means it's where you're just all about you. And this is the kind of thinking that is on the things of man. It's the final level. It's idolatry. All self-worship is idolatry. Colossians 3, chapter 5 says, Coveting is idolatry. Wanting things so badly for yourself that you're willing to sin to get it, that is idolatry. That's bowing to self. But see the grace and the clarity. By speaking it straight up and straight with straight clarity, Peter can make this right. It's been said a good leader makes a bad decision, then turns around and makes a good decision. I live by that. I make a bad decision all the time, and then I turn around and try to make a good decision to follow it up. Because we're not perfect. But we can repent when we begin to become the insubordinate impediment, Satan-seduced thinker, speaker, and then we start to worship ourselves, and we say, whoa, I need to stop, drop, and pray <laughs> to get out of this in a Bible-soaked way. Listen, preaching, teaching, singing, talking, praying, all of this can be part of what God uses to help you think biblically, to think rightly. But at the center of transformation will be the Bible, God's word, the truth. Where do I get this from? Well, look, Romans 12, 1 and 2, it just says everything I've been saying in a succinct, inspired way. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're talking about worship. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you test and know the will of God? By being transformed in the renewal of your mind, the renewal of your mind. You're not conformed to the world. You don't want to worship the world. You don't want to worship yourself. You want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what it means to be that living sacrifice, which is that Count the cost, cost of discipleship, take up your cross mindset, conform to Christ's image. I'm a living sacrifice for him. Philippians 4, 8, 9, same thing. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what happens when you do that? What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. If you think rightly, you'll live rightly and you'll experience peace. It takes hard work. What does it take to take up your cross? A yieldedness to a mindset 
that is yielded to truth. You might not die for the faith. Most of us won't. Maybe all of us won't literally physically die for the faith. But Jesus makes it non-negotiable that we have a mindset where we are willing to die for the faith. It's non-negotiable. Just file it in there. If it comes to that, I'm willing to go. Why is that important? Because that means that you have fully committed yourself to Christ, that you're willing to do anything up to that command standard of dying for the faith, for Christ. I'm willing to do anything. What is it? Here's the question. What is it that you are yet, as this, at this point in your life, still unwilling to do for Christ? Secretly. Won't give this up. Won't stop this. Or I won't do this. Or both. What are you hanging on to? What won't you let go? And what is it that you're unwilling to do? Because God's calling you. And you probably know what it is. We'll start with repenting of self. Saying, God, let me not be like Peter is right here. Let me start being like you. You're the model. And let me give my heart and life to you with this willingness to take up my cross and follow you. Whatever you ask of me. Jesus will expand all of this. Next week, we're going to open up verses 24 to 28 under this header. It's our mindset as Jesus' disciple. That's what this is. It's the mindset of taking up your cross, and he applies it, expands it, opens it up. It's to take it deeper, to see the mindset that we need to have. Jesus models the mindset, and then he calls us to the standard of this mindset. But he shows us how to get there.